Hello, I'm Leisha O'Brien and I play the recorder. Ah no, not that type of recorder. Uh, not that type of recorder either. This type of recorder. My journey in music started at the age of five when I had my first recorder lesson. By age 12, I was hell-bent that I was going to play the flute and for the next nine years I dived into flute repertoire and the joy of orchestral playing. I was incredibly fortunate with my teachers, initially with Jenny Robinson and then later Willie Halpin, who both fostered in me a love of music making and a sense of professionalism. But by the age of 21, I knew a career as a flute player wasn't the future for me. My earliest musical experiences were of playing recorder consort and this sense of camaraderie stayed with me throughout my musical development. Even throughout my undergraduate studies, I was yearning for the old repertoire and felt the constant pull of the music I had grown up playing. When I graduated from college, there was no question that I was a little at sea. I was offered a stint as an au pair in Amsterdam and my mum encouraged me to go for a couple of months. During my stay, I went to a concert at which I bumped into a chap who had not long before given a masterclass in the College of Music in Dublin. The chap turned out to be Ton Hartsecker, director of the Conservatorium van Amsterdam. He invited me to visit the conservatoire and to attend the open day. It was there that I met recorder professor Paul Einhouts and despite having had no formal undergraduate training as a recorder player, he saw something in me. I ended up joining the international recorder class of Paul Einhouts and Walter van Howe. The years that followed in Holland were an extraordinary experience where I grew as a musician and as a person. Then in 2003, I returned to Ireland to begin a career performing and teaching.
In 2011, I recorded my first album, a collaborative project with the artist Lorna Donlan. In the intervening years, I have recorded three further solo albums. The music you will hear over the next little while is all from my back catalogue. Recording my own albums awoke in me a real interest in recording. I was slightly addicted to the process of capturing audio and then listening back, figuring out the best way to approach a piece, a sound, an arrangement. This fascination led me down the path from recorder player to recording producer, working with so many of my colleagues within the music scene in Ireland. So, let's talk about the recorder. I guess one of the biggest problems is that people hear recorder and they think of a classroom full of children playing on cheap plastic instruments. But there's so much more to it than that. Let's start by finding out what makes a recorder a recorder. Well, it's a type of fipple flute, like a pipe or our own tin whistle, which means there's a block at the top of the tube which creates a channel through which we blow the air. The main difference is that there's a thumb hole around the back and seven finger holes at the front, and it's this that distinguishes it from other types of flute or pipe instruments. Here's a short piece where I teamed up with traditional musician Fionn O'Halloon. Fionn is playing the tin whistle, and I am playing a soprano or descant recorder, the type of recorder you might have learnt in school. It's an unlikely pairing, but you'll hear the comparison between these two popular educational instruments. What many people don't realise is that there isn't just one type of recorder. In fact, there are lots of different types of recorders. You have a massive range of sizes, from the subcontra bass measuring 3 metres, all the way to the tiny Garkline at only 16 centimetres. Within that, we have numerous models, including medieval, Renaissance, Baroque, Modern and various hybrid instruments that straddle musical eras. We also have multiple pitches. Modern pitch, Baroque pitch, Renaissance pitch and so on. In other words, the note A is a different pitch depending on what musical period you are in. I have about 30 instruments and it isn't nearly enough. 
A good wooden recorder, played frequently, will last about four or five years before it needs replacing, due to the fact that we're blowing warm air into a piece of wood. Interestingly, while string instruments appreciate in value, wind instruments depreciate the minute you start playing them. A professional recorder will cost in excess of €2,000. And what about the name? Recorder. There are so many other names it could have been. If we look at some other languages, we have fistula, tibia, flagell, floyd, block flute. You'll note none of them sound like recorder. My personal favourite is flauta dolce, or sweet flute, because I think that accurately describes it. Then where did the English name come from? According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the English verb to record, meaning to get by heart, to commit to memory, or to repeat or say over as a lesson, dates from as early as 1225. The earliest written reference to the word recorder is provided by the 1388 household accounts of the Earl of Derby, which mentions One flute by name of recorder, bought in London for my lord, three shillings and four pence. To confuse matters, the word flute was used to describe both the recorder and the side-blown flute, and this practice lasted until late in the 18th century. The musicologist Anthony Roland Jones suggested that the name recorder was adopted for this instrument in reference to its use to assist singers who would otherwise find it difficult to hold their parts in tune and in time. The very portable recorder would have been a convenient aid to learning, rehearsing and even performing such music. Eventually, with three instruments, a piece could be repeated or recorded to give the singers a rest and a change of sound for the listeners. There is also an association between the name recorder and birdsong, but we'll come back to that later. I started playing, as many people do, on a plastic fantastic soprano recorder. And it's this image of the recorder that has given it such a bad name. I'm regularly tagged in posts about how awful the recorder is. You know the type of thing. I thought parenting was hard until my child came home with a recorder. Or an article in a satirical newspaper about the County Clare man who signed a million euro deal with Interscope Records. It's a problem when people ask you what you do. When you reveal that you play the recorder, it usually results in glazed over looks or stories of childhood struggles with Little Donkey. And generally, the view is that if you play the recorder, your musical proficiency extends to three blind mice. Well, I took that challenge.
poor mice. And like those little tailless creatures, the recorders suffered an unfortunate fate. Let's have a look at what happened. I'm going to take you back to the Middle Ages. Musicologist Raymond Malin says, All prehistoric wind instruments seem to stem directly from nature, as they were made of wood, stone, horn, bone or shell, and were subsequently formed, bored, conjoined and provided with all kinds of accessories. However, the means of producing sound have remained virtually unchanged to this day. Surviving examples of flute instruments are 35,000 years old. I'm not going to go back that far, but maybe let's try the last 1,000 years. The recorder as we know it exists in iconography that goes back a millennium. Before the 14th century, there are several illustrations of ambiguous pipes, which may or may not be recorders. And since then, there are many instances of recorder or recorder-like instruments in art, wood carving and stonework. At this time, the recorder is often associated with angels. Something I like to think that continues to this day. Surviving examples of recorders date from the 14th century. The medieval recorder, not dissimilar in size to our school soprano recorder, has a narrow cylindrical bore and quite a direct sound. It's hard to know for sure what music the recorder played as we know so little about the repertoire, particularly as it was mostly handed down by ear. But an educated guess would be that it was used to accompany singers or to play dances such as this.
In the Renaissance period, roughly between the years 1400 to 1600, we see the emergence of families or consorts of recorders in line with the other instruments. The ranges of the instruments corresponded with the ranges of the human voices, and so the instruments eventually came to be similarly named, soprano, alto, tenor and bass. These recorders had a range of just under two octaves with a bold, rich timbre. In addition to recorder consort, we also hear recorders in mixed consort, particularly with the viola da gamba. angels. It was common to see depictions of a trio of angels playing recorders. Three-part music and three-part consorts are symbolic of the Trinity. The optimum recorder consort is made up of a small bass in F, a tenor in C and an alto in G. The instruments are a fifth apart and can be played with a method of tuning known as pure tuning or just intonation. This allows for sympathetic frequencies which have a kind of heavenly quality. By the 15th century, the recorder is associated with pastoral settings and with the supernatural. this period, the recorder was a popular and commonplace instrument. One of its greatest champions was King Henry VIII of England. As a young man, Henry was very athletic. One of his many pastimes was hunting, and there is an interesting association with recorders and deer, as we can hear from this medieval text. The nature of the stag is such that it takes great delights in melody, by means of which the hunter who wishes to ensnare him sends an unarmed man in front of him playing a flute or singing sweetly. This idea captured my imagination, so I put it to use. Here's an extract from the child ballad The Three Ravens, in which our dying hero is tended by his lover in the form of a doe. With a dandery, 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 
His hands do lie down at His feet, so well do they their Master keep. With a down, derry, 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 down, Amongst his vast instrument collection, Henry owned dozens of recorders. He employed Italian recorder players at court and was known to have been quite the accomplished composer. Allegedly, this is one of the king's compositions. Greensleeves is most likely not by Henry VIII, but it's a tune that has remained popular to this day and countless composers have written variations on it. This version, Divisions on Greensleeves to a Ground, was published in London in 1706. During the late 17th century, the recorder went through a dramatic structural change in line with most other wind instruments. 
The recorder was now in three parts with a fully chromatic range of two and a half octaves and a tonal character of far greater flexibility. The recorder became a virtuosic solo instrument as popular as any other at the time. The great masters all composed for the instruments. Vivaldi, Telemann, Handel and of course Johann Sebastian Bach who wrote possibly one of the most popular pieces in the repertoire. Brandenburg, Concerto Number no. 4.
Baroque period, the recorder began to be used in a more allegorical way. It was employed in opera and in sacred works to represent motifs such as death or the afterlife, oftentimes scored in pairs. In pastoral scenes, the recorder represented the shepherd's pipe, and these passages were frequently written in keys such as F major, which sits very nicely on the alto recorder. And of course, the recorder was used to depict love and lovers, often in a suggestive manner. This use of the instrument is particularly true in art, where recorders were used to symbolise the state of a relationship. Cross recorders, for example, might represent the end of a relationship, perhaps through death or a rejection of one party by the other.
I will give my love an apple without error. I will give my love a house without error. I will give my love a palace. My first album came about on the 19th of January 2011. It was my birthday and I was playing at the funeral of a friend who had died too young. I played The Lark in the Clear Air and as I was playing it had this sudden urge to record an album. Perhaps it was a sense of wanting to leave something behind. I'd long had a fascination with birdsong and music. For my final undergrad recital before I retired as a concert flute player, I performed Messiaen's Le Merle Noir. It's a fiendishly difficult piece in the flute repertoire, and while I was learning it, I would go outside in the garden of my family home in Punchestown, County Kildare, to practice. Messiaen had captured field recordings of birdsong and attempted to recreate the music in notation. I was curious, if I played the motifs in the garden, would the birds sing back? They did! And that was the start of my interest in birdsong and music. Repertoire of many cultures through all eras has included music depicting birds. Some repertoire attempts to capture birdsong, while others refer to birds allegorically. In the Irish tradition, birds often symbolised love, usually unrequited. One of the collections I was particularly taken by was the Bird Fancier's Delight, published in London in 1717. A collection of tunes divided into sections by bird type, the purpose of the book was to teach caged birds to sing using small flutes such as recorders. This was a popular and profitable practice during the 18th century, though possibly not so much fun for the birds. I mentioned earlier an association between birdsong and the name recorder. The birds were described as having recorded their song, so one theory is that the name recorder came from the practice of playing melodies to birds. 
Here are some extracts from the collection, which I chose to represent the four seasons on my album, How Happy for the Little Birds. We have tunes for the throstle, the East India nightingale, the woodlark and the starling. Incidentally, recorder playing was very popular in Ireland, although it's interesting that it was the new German transverse flute that took over in popularity, and we still see it in use today in traditional Irish music. Should you find yourself in St Michael's Church in Dublin, you will see a very fine woodcut above the organ on which you can spy some Baroque recorders peeking out at the sides. It's said that Handel practised on this organ in advance of his performance of the Messiah on nearby Fishamble Street. There were several recorder makers in Ireland during this period. Perhaps most notable amongst them was John Neal of the celebrated Irish tunes fame. There exists a fine example of a recorder in D, which we call a voice flute, in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. So it's quite possible that you might have heard this performed like this in Dublin in the early 18th century.
is a misconception that the recorder disappeared at the end of the Baroque era. To be sure, its popularity was superseded by the flute and the newly emerging clarinet. It didn't have the dynamic and tonal capacities that the other woodwind instruments had, and attempts to apply the same structural changes to the instrument didn't take off. But it didn't disappear completely. The recorder remained popular in England and Ireland, in the New World, both North and South America, well into the 1800s. And by 1885, the early music revival had begun. Already by this time, individual musicians and musicologists had begun to make and play replicas of the historical instruments, and there was a movement towards resurrecting the music from the past. But how do we get to the plastic fantastic stage? According to Nicholas S. Lander's excellent resource, The Recorder Homepage, Peter Harland started what is now called the German Recorder Movement, aimed at furthering the spirit of the German youth movement in the early 20th century. Harland wanted an instrument, and I quote, whose sound could not be enhanced, no matter how great the art, whose essence could not be altered by any virtuosity. The dramatic growth of the musical instrument industry started by Harland to fuel the German recorder movement resulted in some 50 or so workshops producing recorders. Plastic school recorders were first made in Germany as early as 1936 and were manufactured in England by Schott & Co. early in World War II. They were sent to German-held prisoners of war, particularly those in the RAF, to help while away the years of captivity. In the USA, the Lewis & Scott Manufacturing Company in Connecticut were making a plastic Scotty Piccolo recorder in 1939. And from then on, the mass production of recorders really took off as educators realised the potential of accessing inexpensive instruments which could be used to teach large numbers of children. However, Despite the reputational damage that plastic recorders brought, there have been many pioneers of the instrument in the last century. Particularly since the 1960s, there have been huge advances in playing, research into historical practices and some incredible work by recorder makers in replicating and furthering the instrument to include keys, wider bores and even electronic capabilities. And as composers began to write new compositions for a recorder, the techniques demanded of players has expanded greatly. In addition to requiring virtuosity on the instrument, composers explore extended techniques and push the instrument to its absolute limit. The Eagle Recorder, by the late Dutch recorder-maker Adriana Brokink, is an example of how the recorder has changed in recent years. It's closer in shape to a clarinet and has keys to allow for more technical scope. 
In this next recording, you will hear the Eagle recorder with piano. Recorder and piano is not always a successful collaboration, as the recorder cannot match the piano's dynamic range. With the Eagle, we have much better balance.
it might seem like an odd thing that a recorder player became a music producer. But really, what better instrument to come into it from? As a recorder player, I have a knowledge of repertoire spanning a thousand years. I've been a soloist, a chamber musician, an orchestral player. I've been in a band, played in operas, performed with some of our finest traditional musicians and even made a guest appearance on a rock album. I know what it's like to be on the top, in the middle and on the bass line of a piece. We recorder players can read multiple clefs, we can transpose at sight, play by ear, read score and tune to any number of temperaments. So instead of seeing the recorder as a plastic learning tool, and I fully appreciate its value as a plastic learning tool, I see it as the perfect instrument to allow you to become a rounded and experienced musician. And I urge everyone to put aside any preconceptions they had about the recorder and embrace the flauta dolce, the sweet flute. Thank you.